Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Let's start by having you introduce yourself. Well, I'm Doug Drexler, or so I'm told. (laughs) (laughs) It's all an alien illusion, I think. I don't think any of it is really true because so many crazy things have happened. It just couldn't possibly be real. You know, but yeah. I work in movies and TV, and probably more than half of my career was on Star Trek (laughs) and a lot of science fiction stuff. I mean, I am a kind of a science fiction person, and I've been lucky enough to say that almost all the work I've been involved with has been genre over all these years, which is amazing, which really, either it's an alien illusion or I'm like dead on the side of the road somewhere. You know, where you have, some people say you see your life pass before you, or maybe your brain, uh, 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 it it gives you everything you want, you know? You're powering the matrix. Hey, I mean. Exactly. Not such a bad gig. (laughs) It seems real. Right? That's that's, that's how they get you. Uh, Wait, so you, Yeah. Were you a, a science fiction fan then before you started working in science fiction? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, uh, I was a science fiction fan when it wasn't cool to be a science fiction fan. Where mm-hmm. if you read science fiction novels, which is really where, I mean, every kid starts with comic books, you know. But I mean, um, you know, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. Uh, and, and I read a lot because I really wasn't like the other kids you know i didn't play football i didn't care about sports and I, I i mostly read science fiction and drew drew pictures and stuff like that and who did uh, you what authors did you love well uh, you know the, harlan ellison isaac asimov theodore sturgeon um uh arthur c clark uh uh hg uh, uh, wells Edgar Rice Burroughs in particular, I love John Carter of Mars. Yeah. That movie is awesome. And I read, there were like 20 something books. And I read them all like four times when I was a kid. And I loved that movie. I've I've run into people online who say, that movie was terrible. It was nothing like the books. And I'm like, you really haven't read the books, have you? (laughs) (laughs) No, but my friend did. And he told me, I'm like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was a science fiction kid. And um, I guess when I was, you know, I, every kid starts with like Superman and Batman. And then after a while, that stuff, even at the age of uh, seven years old, I think I got to, I began to realize that it was kind of kitty kitty stuff compared to the stuff Stan Lee was writing in the early days of Marvel. You know, so became, I was a Marvel freak when, you know, You'd be mocked for reading. My parents didn't want me reading comic books. They, 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 they that in the fifties there was a um, a communist witch hunt thing that went on during the McCarthy mm-hmm. era, and yeah, comic yeah. books were blamed for uh, juvenile delinquency. And uh, so your parents read that in paper. They don't want you reading comic books. But but then I went on to you know novels, and there really wasn't. A, there's so much science fiction now that you could watch. But back then, it was really pretty. It was a pretty fine line of stuff that uh, that was even any good, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, of course, there was always Twilight Zone. It was always fantastic, you know. And I, I was exposed to that. But uh, in 1964, there was a World's Fair in New York City. It was two years, 64 and 65 New York World's Fair. And it was at a time where when all these big corporations uh, had money to burn because we're talking early 60s. It wasn't that long after World War II. It was kind of unfair competition. You know, the rest of the world couldn't. Things have even, you know, the playing field is kind of level lately. But right after World War II, the economy was booming and they were spending huge amounts of money building pavilions to represent their companies. Mm -hmm. Plus, there was also, uh, uh, you know, international section where different countries had exhibits. And uh, and I was 11 years old at the time. And my father had a TV repair store in Flushing Meadow. And I, uh, I, I went with my family once and I was so taken by it because it was heavily the future and science fiction. And really, that fair which was enormous. Uh, I mean, imagine Disney World, okay, in Flushing Meadow, and that Disney said, I'm building this, but it's only gonna be up for two years. Can you imagine building Disney World and then two years later, we're gonna take it apart, which is what they did. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went with my family and I was, you know, General Motors had a thing called the Futurama. Uh, there was a Ford, Pavilion was like a time travel thing, you know, done by Disney with dinosaurs and uh, General mm -hmm. Electric uh, had the uh, Carousel of Progress. I mean, uh, there was so much amazing stuff. I think it maybe it was the first time I realized in my head that someone can make a living. Someone is creating this stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it finally occurred to me because I was seeing things with my own eyes right in front of me. And so for two years, my father, it was only open during the summers, the booth. Uh, twice a week, he dropped me off at the main gate, give me some money, and then pick me up at night. And, was, and I'd be on my own. But so 64, 65, the fair ended. I watched in horror as they demoed the thing. And then about a year later, Star Trek premiered. 1966. Yeah. And, um, it was like a consolation prize almost, you know. Um, that Star Trek was always impressed with technology and gadgets and things like that. And so was the fair, you know. And uh, and also we were in the middle of the, uh, the space race, you know, Project Mercury, you know, mm -hmm. Apollo, um, Gemini uh, was, was going on at the same time. Uh, so, I mean, I was a well-read kid. And when I watched Star Trek, I was literally blown away by it. You know, it put me into an alpha state when I was watching it. And I'd sit there for, you know, 15 minutes afterwards. Just I've had the same conversation with Mike and Denise Okuda, how they would feel after watching an episode, you know, it would give you a lot to think about. Um, but uh, uh, I was. See, the other thing I had Star Trek. Oh, I wasn't allowed to watch television, by the way. I was. It was during the week, it was banned, absolutely banned. I wasn't allowed to watch it. And I, uh, one night when my mother was taking a shower, Thursday night, I snuck downstairs and turned on the TV and watched about 10 minutes of the show. And you couldn't not be impressed, you know, the design work and the acting and the story. And 
Uh, and I, I went on strike for one hour of television a week. And I got myself one hour of TV. <laughs> the, the thing was that um, the book, The Making of Star Trek, which came out, I guess, during the second season, mm-hmm. that was like an epiphany for me because um, I'm sitting there and I'm reading, I'm like 12, 13, 12, 13 years old. I'm reading call sheets and production memos and diagrams and blueprints of stages and budgets, you know, crazy. Uh, and then Roddenberry's uh, wife, Majel, had started up a mail order company uh, called Lincoln Enterprises while the show was still on the air. And she was having scripts printed at Paramount <laughs> as part of the show and selling them. And, uh, uh, and, she was going into editorial and all the uh, discards that they had cut out and were throwing away. She was scooping them up and she had two people sitting with scissors and cutting film clips, you know, and you could buy film clips. You could buy a packet that was visual effect shots. And, uh, and that was an epiphany when I started buying that stuff. I mean, uh, you would find film clips of all your favorite moments And then there'd be an oddball clip that isn't in any episode at all. Or there's a guy with a clapboard, you know, standing there. And that's when between that and uh, the making of Star Trek, I realized that there was a whole world beyond that frame of the television of stuff Mm -hmm. I couldn't see, all invisible, which to me was even more science fiction than the show was. So that really was an enormous epiphany uh, for me. Um, I remember, though, my father saying, if you put half as much time into your schoolwork as you do into that television show, you'd be okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, you seem to have turned out okay. (laughs) Little did he know, although, I mean, it led to a career. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he went to the Academy Awards when we went, you know, so <laughs> I, I don't think it was till we were nominated for an Academy Award that he even believed I was working in business. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty good evidence. Oh, and, and he came out for a visit and I took him around the Star Trek sets. Uh, I remember my father always had a smart alecky mouth and he always had an answer for everything. And then I saw him literally gobsmacked where he was tongue tied. We ran into uh, Michelle Forbes in full uniform, you know, as Ensign Rowe. And he was just, he, he could barely speak. It was such a great moment to see him <laughs> shut up. <once. laughs> so, I mean, I, uh, I ended up, I mean, I really got into the business through makeup. Um, yeah, you started as a protege of uh, Dick Smith, and yeah, I mean, if you he was one of the pioneers, that, right? Yeah, he's uh, to me, he's the greatest makeup artist who ever lived, and he revolutionized. I mean, yeah, there were others too, but I, you know, Dick was my favorite. Uh, you know, there were guys like John Chambers who did Planet of the Apes, uh, and there were the Bermans, you know, Tom Berman. He actually he started with John Chambers, you know, uh, but Dick Smith. He worked out of New York, and he at one time was the head of the NBC makeup department during when live television was really still big in New York. 
live drama, you know, that was coming out of New York City. And um, so he did quite a bit. He did Creatures and Monsters, too. But he was doing more of the kind of makeup that always blew me away. And that is makeup that you're not even aware of. You're not aware the person's wearing makeup, that they look dramatically mm -hmm. different in reality. I remember <clears throat> when The Exorcist came out. I guess it was in the 70s. And, of course, it was a phenomenon at the time. The, the novel was like a huge monster hit, like Jaws was as a novel first. Mm -hmm. And the whole country was terrified of The Exorcist even before they ever saw it. I think the Catholic Church was saying, don't see this movie, you could be possessed. <laughs> That means everybody's going to go. You know? I mean, <laughs> sure. Born by the church. It must be really great. <laughs> so um, um, I saw that movie. And of course, there was the, you know, horrifically possessed Linda Blair. Mm -hmm. as, you know, the little girl. And everyone was horrified by that makeup. And it really is one of the scariest makeups of all time. Yeah, a few years, and you know, there's the um, uh, the 86, 90 year old priest, Father Marin, who comes to exorcise her, and um, about four or five years later, uh, and that character is played by Max von Sydow. I saw von Sydow in another movie, and he was like in his forties. I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this older than it? no? This was done now. How the hell? And I realized that he was rubber from like here to here to here to here, just totally rubber. No one ever thinks anything of it. No one knows what a possessed person looks like. Sure, knows what old people look like. Mm -hmm. you know? And to not have it. I mean, if it, if it's not done right, it'll pull you right out of the movie all through the entire movie and every scene he's in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I was blown away by that. I think that that's when I knew that makeup was really special. You know, I, th I think I always, my plan really was to, I thought I was going to be a comic book artist or something, you know. Thank God that didn't happen because that's a terrible life unless you somehow have a hit like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you made a good deal for yourself, you know. Um, but otherwise, comic book artists tend to live, you know, hand to mouth. They don't make a lot of money unless they're doing lots of work. But mm -hmm. most of them, just like an actor, they know the odds are against them, but they, they're willing to take that chance because it's something you really want to do. I'm, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I went the Hollywood way. That was much, much better, <laughs> much better way to go for me. Um, yeah, but, uh, but anyway, I found out that, uh, I started, I got invited to a Halloween party and I had been collecting articles for years on visual effects. And in those days, which I guess it was, that was late seventies and on the only way you could get information was books, magazines, newspapers. There was no VHS tape and there was and, and there was no internet just type in life cast how to make a life cast right yeah on the internet right now and hit life cast and literally ten thousand things will come up nobody has an excuse anymore for not doing something it's never been easier to get the information and it's never been easier to meet people who are actually doing the work 
I mean, I could go on Facebook right now and, and make a connection with a hundred different art directors and artists. And it's just crazy, you know? Uh, so anyway, I had all these articles and I, I always wanted to do a Planet of the Apes makeup. And I figured, well, I have enough, I've collected a, enough articles to do it. I decided that's what I was going to do. And boy, once you do that, and if it's fairly successful, boy, it really blows your mind. Um, uh, first, you have to sculpt. You have to do a life cast for somebody. Never did that before. Take that cast make copies of it, sculpt on it. And I'd never sculpted before. I found out that if I could, I guess, because, you know, I did a lot of drawing, I could sculpt, sculpted the makeup up. Then I had to make molds of that. Never did that before. Ran foam latex, never did that before. Uh, find out where all the theatrical supplies were in Manhattan. Luckily I was close to that, you know, because you have Broadway and things like that happening. And I did my first makeup and I've heard Dick Smith talk about his the same thing for him. It's like this moment where you feel really powerful. You've made this creature, you know, and even you are fooled by it. And I've seen people who, uh, the same thing happens to people wearing makeups. When a makeup like that goes on, it causes a transformation. So the person who's wearing it is going through this like psychological transformation. And so are the witnesses people who see it um you know you you look at the history of masks and they go back to ancient times you know priests would wear masks to channel gods and you know um very very powerful um but the first makeup i did it it utterly blew my mind and after that i just could not stop i was you know making molds and sculpting things and I just knew this was the way to go. And uh, a friend of mine who uh, wrote for a film magazine, I showed him some pictures and stuff I was doing. He says, you know, I just had, I just interviewed Dick Smith. I'm going to give you his telephone number and you should call him. And I swear to God, it took me like two weeks to build the courage up to even <laughs> call him on the phone. I was scared to death. Of course, I, by then, I mean, I knew who he was. There were a couple of real... There's, there's some wonderful makeup books like Richard Corson's stage makeup that has two big sections in the book on Dick Smith doing two makeups. One is um, Dustin Hoffman as Little Big Man. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you haven't, it's a movie to watch. It, it's serious, but it's a comedy at the same time. And it really brought Dustin Hoffman, you know, to the forefront along with The Godfather. But uh, in the very beginning, uh, he's Jack Crab, an Indian scout, you know, who was with George Armstrong Custer. So he's like 90 something years old. Dick Smith did this amazing makeup on him. Uh, in the book, there's a whole section on how he did that makeup with all kinds of pictures. And then there was another makeup that he did on Hal Holbrook. He did Holbrook up as Mark Twain. And that is an amazing makeup as well. And the whole thing is in the book. And, you know, when I used to go to work, I was on a telephone sales deck at an architectural supply. I used to set that book up on my desk, open to those pages, and just while I'm, you know, taking orders, looking at every little and blowing up pictures with projectors. You know, it's not like a, on the computer where you have a JPEG and just zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. Now I got to take the book, put it on a giant projector to project it on a wall so I can try to read what's on Dick Smith's shelves, you know. Uh, but, uh, 
yeah, that was like three months later, I was working with Dick on a movie called The Hunger that had David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve. And it was really the best possible job I could have gotten on. There were so many different kinds of old age makeups and puppet heads and uh, mummy suits. And, and from that point on, uh, it's just been pretty nonstop for me the last 40 something years, you know. <laughs> uh, so you've worked with all kinds of big names. So what's your favorite makeup story of working with somebody and transforming them for the screen? Boy, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of crazy stories. Cause like I said, people transform. Mm -hmm. Al Pacino in uh, Dick Tracy. He's kind of a, you know, uh, reserved. I know he plays very boisterous characters, but in reality, he's kind of a shy, you know, quiet in some ways. Uh, and um, he would come in and uh, we would, you know, my John Caglione and I were partners for like 11 years. And we would do that. We worked together on all of that stuff. He really was the makeup genius, not me. And um, Al would go to sleep while we were putting on the makeup. And, you know, you'd have to, I mean, he had a headrest and everything. But, so it wasn't like his head was, you know, doing this, but um, uh, he would wake up every so often and look at himself and he would be a little more that guy. And then he would go into a final trance before it was finished and wake up and look at us and not recognize us anymore. And wow. wonder, who are you guys? <laughs> I, I got to get out of here. And he would run out of the trailer and he would be like a dervish on stage, you know, I mean, really doing rambunctious stuff that you would never do smacking people on the butt. And, you know, I mean, I mean crazy, crazy stuff. You know, I remember I used to make um, one of my favorite moments. I used to make these like um, jokes that I thought were funny, but kind of, you know, obtuse. And I remember I'd make these jokes and I'd get no reaction at all from him. You know, and some people just don't appreciate it or they don't get it or. <laughs> well, one day I made one of my jokes and he looks up at me and he goes, Doug's jokes. I get them at 2 a.m. <laughs> and to me, that was the greatest compliment. It was like a delayed, delayed burst joke. <laughs> That's great. But there's lots of, you know, crazy stories. Um uh, I mean, I had Jack, Jack Nicholson on his knees in his kitchen taking casts of his hands. You know, <laughs> you know, you're a prisoner, basically. You know, if you're a makeup artist and you're putting makeup on someone or they have to, you own them. <laughs> you know? And there are actors who start off hating you for that because they realize that, well, you're just a makeup artist and I'm a star. But now I have to listen to what you say and I have to sit in this chair for four hours and you're, there's some people who actually chafe under that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's some who just fall right in and enjoy the whole process. But um, even the ones that hate you in the beginning, after you've tortured them enough, they fall in love with you. <laughs> 
It's it's the Stockholm syndrome. I was going to say, I think there's a syndrome for that. Yeah, Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> after, because after a while, they're really, you know, they're hating this. But after a while, it's like, who rubs their shoulder when they're not feeling good? Who brings them a cup of coffee? Who looks after mm -hmm. them? Who wipes their nose when their nose is running? Who, you know, who cleans them at night before they go home to go to bed? I do. <laughs> you know, so there's a certain point where even they utterly fall in love with you. But that's human nature. I mean, people fall in love with, uh, you know, criminals who hold a gun to their head after a while. They start to identify with the, you know. So, I mean, we've had experiences. Uh, you know, Bill Forsyth, his flat top was. I have the, the best stories really do come from makeup, although I have lots of great art department stories and, and things like that. <laughs> there was one, I, a lot of people, a, a lot of people know this story, and I actually wrote it up once about, uh, I, I call it the butt of the joke. Have you ever read that one? Oh, <laughs> I worked, after Dick Tracy, you know, I wanted to go right over to Star Trek. It was... They were about to start up their third season. They were starting up their third season. And now I was out here and I was in the union. I was in East Coast is an East Coast union. It's a totally different union. So to get in the union here, that was really tricky. Um, so Star Trek is, was where it was for me. And I literally begged Mike Westmore. I begged him, please, oh, please, can I come work on the show? And he thought I was crazy because we had just done a big picture. And he's like, you're going to get other pictures. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Star Trek, don't you get it? Yeah, he gets it. Um, so, you know, I did makeup on TNG for like season three, four, and five. I, five, three, four, five. I guess, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it must be. And um, Mike is just the most genuine, genuine, wonderful, sweet, funny Best guy you'd ever want to work with. I mean, under the worst conditions, he's still calm and cracking jokes. And I loved working for Mike Westmore. As a matter of fact, I think that if I didn't go to art department, he was asking me if I would, you know, spearhead, you know, along with him. That you know, when when they did Deep Space Nine, there were going to be two shows now, so he was looking for help as far as overseeing or help running to a certain extent. Still, his show. Uh, but, you know, I spent three years on stage and I lived on the Enterprise D and the act, best cast I ever worked with in all the years, you know, uh, they were so much fun. And the later it got, the more fun it got. And most of them, you know, had very boisterous sense of humor. You know, Patrick more and more as he went along. In the beginning, he was a stuffy Englishman. But, um, you know, I because I spent so much time on stage, I had been studying the designs of the sets, which I loved. Uh, and of course the Enterprise D, which most people hated when they first saw it, but now they all act like they've always loved it, but it's not true. <laughs> they didn't like Patrick Stewart either. They right. hated Patrick Stewart in the beginning, you know? He surrendered, you know? <laughs> we surrendered to Q, people were having a heart attack over that. But I really wanted to be in the art department. And I had done about 12 years, 13 years of makeup. And we hit the heights. I had a fantastic time. I had, you know, with Dick Smith and then my partner, John Caglione, you know, but I, I really, I, for me, I don't understand how 
you could do the same thing for 40 years. There were so many other interesting things. And I ended up going to the art department because of Michael Kuda. And I think I was in the middle of telling you, oh, yeah, butter the joke. So I'm in the makeup shack or whatever. I mean, it really was a hole in the wall, the lab, the makeup lab. And uh, Mike Westmore comes in and says, uh, the union doesn't have a body makeup person. And that means I could, you know, have one of the regular makeup people. And he had this pancake. He says, take this pancake and a wet sponge and just do, you know, you go over someone's body from head to toe if they're going to be naked or, you know, or mostly naked or blemishes and things like that. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I wonder who, what beauty this is going to be. And he's like, it's John Delancey. <laughs> Damn it. I was still, still glad to see John Delancey, but but John Delancey's butt. Um, <laughs> he's go down, he's in his trailer, and I go down there and knock on the door. And he's like on the phone arguing with an, his agent. I have no idea. And he knows I'm, I hold up the things and he drops his robes. And he's not 100% naked. He's got like a modesty G-string in the front. But while he's on the phone... And this is like being licked by a St. Bernard is what it feels like, except the tongue is cold. It's wet sponge and pancake going all the way down, you know, from head to toe, all the way down to his feet and, you know, blending them off. And uh, I remember uh, the, the second AD comes out and says they're ready for John. And uh, he puts on his robe and we go in and, you know, it's ice cold on the stage. And it's a beehive of activity. It's stages. There's nothing like it. And we go onto the bridge and it's a scene where Q loses his powers and he's floating naked on the bridge. And I look over, everybody's there, you know, the cast and everything. Uh, and they all, you know, love to rib me because we had just won the Academy Award. And every time uh, LeVar would see me, he would always say in his best announcer's voice. And I mean, every time. Ladies and gentlemen, Academy Award-winning makeup artist, Doug Drexler. And as a matter of fact, I was in Studio City one day, and some guy comes running around the corner and runs into me, and it's LeVar. And he sees me, and he turns to everyone on the street on Ventura Boulevard and does that. <laughs> so anyway, he's doing that. And Owen oh, Dorn, of course, loved to call, yell my name in that voice of his, Drexler, Drexler. He loved the sound of it, you know. And he said it should be a Klingon name. It's a good Klingon name, he said. And mm -hmm. Bear actually named the Klingon after me, uh, Drex. I think it was a <laughs> Montauk son. I don't, I don't remember. Worf kills him. But <laughs> I look over and the director is uh, uh, Les Landau is the director. Les, I know him pretty well because his brother is John Landau, who was a producer on Dick Tracy. And we had done like four pictures before that. And John probably had a lot to do with us getting the Tracy. And so he sees everybody. He sees, you know, LeVar going, Academy Award-winning makeup artist. And, and I see this look in his eye, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> and he, he goes over to Delancey's butt, and he points to a spot and goes, makeup! <laughs> you missed a spot. And I walk up, and I'm like, in front of the whole crew, making up John Delancey's <laughs> butt cheek. Landau turns to the crew and says, ladies and gentlemen, Academy Award winning makeup artist, Doug Drexler. That's a question. <laughs> then it was another one. Remember Lal? Data's daughter. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that was a big makeup, you know. I mean, uh, Mike sculpted part of it, and I did part of it, and I ended up putting it on, and it took hours to put on, and I had to get there really early, man. And that Leonard Crowfoot, the most zen guy I've ever met in my life. I mean, the, I, I told him the way this makeup works is, you know, you're totally sealed in because they don't want to see any, you know, genitalia or butt crack or anything. So you make mm -hmm. appliances to cover all that and glue it down. And I'm like, there'll be no peeing. <laughs> you know, peeing. And he was like totally okay with some actors are made, you know, they'll just he was one of the incredible ones. Um he stopped eating and drinking like the day before. Wow. Yeah. And he went, you know, from early in the morning the next day to late, late, late at night. And then he had to come back and do it again at one point. Um so you you, you've done everything artistic on Star Trek, right? Everything from makeup to visual effects to concept and scenic art and illustrator. Yeah, so what do you like best? I like them all. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, the art department was, I'm like, oh God, I had so much time in the makeup department. I had so much fun with Mike in the makeup department. Um, you know, the, the art department gave me way more opportunities than anything else I've done because you end up interfacing with almost every other department, you know? I mean, I did visual, I did some visual effects on Star Trek, but it really, for me, it wasn't until I went on Battlestar Galactica with Gary Hutzel and he made me a CG supervisor. And that's where I really was in the, you know, the, you know, in the fire on that one. But, you know, makeup is, you could end, you could be doing sets one day. You could possibly design a makeup if Mike Westmore needs help, although he really never really did. Uh, if art department, if visual effects during the physical model days ran out of money, Gary or Dan Curry knew they could come up to the art department and we'd make a Klingon space station out of uh, sewage strainers, you know, for free. Uh, and then getting to design, you see the graphics, L cars, mm -hmm. so beautiful. And I, I was in love with them. I idolized Mike. Like, holy crap. I mean, look at how many years have gone by and people still. I, I, I and I've said this before. I dare anybody to draw me. You know how? I dare anybody to draw me four different, five different science fiction interfaces from other shows or movies or anything. And oh, what's that? You can't think of five? Well, well okay. Uh, how about three? Draw me three. Oh, you can't draw three of them. Huh? What, one? No, the only one that most people can, if I ask you right now, mm -hmm. you probably can draw something that represents what Michael Kuda did with his, you know, T-bar graphics and stuff like that. I mean, that's, you go to JPL and people have it on their, uh, uh, their screensavers. Uh, so where was I? Um, so the interfaces, so, you know, Star Trek has some of the most iconic design elements in kind of in the world so is there like a delight a design philosophy or what guidelines or just the sensibilities of the amazing people who are working on the show how did you kind well, of keep it all coherent the fortunate thing about that enormous chunk of time you know from when next gen first premiered to the end of enterprise and then on to movies and not again until picard season three well partially mm -hmm. season two Dave Blass brought, you know, 
uh, some of the old timers back because he says, I want to get the band back together because mm -hmm. he's recognizing what you just said. He knows that. And what mostly happens on shows is you'll get a production designer. And, and this is, you you will get production design. Well, of course you take your marching orders from the director or the producer. And if the producer says, it's very important to me, the, um, uh, the legacy of the show, that mm -hmm. there be a strong through line through everything. Well, then if you have that, you make sure everything connects that you look at what was done before and spin off of it, but not so far that it's unrecognizable, you know. Uh, and then you end up with something like Picard that a lot, it feels like it's connected to that era. See, so yeah. first ones, you know, that feels connected. Well, Lower Decks does. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, um, or you could get someone who says, no, I'm doing Star Trek now. And I want to do my Star Trek. And they kind of have this vision that they're going to revolutionize it and take it where it's never been before. And and everything that they did before was they didn't have any money. They didn't have any time. That's that's junk. You know, there are people who believe it, who feel that way. Um, so I, I think that a lot of what happened once, you know, once the J first J.J. Abrams movie, you could see that there was a some things they hung on to, but there was a lot of stuff. When we did Picard season two, Stargazer shows up and the internet exploded. They're like, oh my God, it looks like a Starfleet ship. This is the first really Starfleet ship we've seen in decades. And they look at it and the closer they look, they realize that all the stuff, people who love this stuff, they know it. They memorize it. They look at a ship and they want to see that everything they know should be there is there. Otherwise, an imposter is doing the design. They want to see uh, a transport emitter. They want to see uh, a phaser strip. They want to see uh, a, uh, a warp core egress hatch on the bottom. They, you know, and if it is, and they want to see hull plating that makes sense, not just a hodgepodge of panels but you look at it and it looks carefully thought out and designed and if you're into that you'll look at it and you'll say wow it's all here and i know if i take this panel off over here i'm probably going to find a plasma accelerator there they love that i love that i love feeling mm -hmm. like you know so it's like if you go in and change everything you can offend a lot of people who have invested a lot of time in loving it and learning it, you know? And I think that that's part of the problem that they've had over the last couple of decades and that Picard season three and a little bit in season two, season three though, Picard was, oh my God. I mean, that was like a, what a present to not only the fans, but uh, the people behind the camera too, you know? Um, uh, People like me and Mike and Denise and uh, if you worked on the show before that, they really didn't want you because you knew too much about the show because they want to reinvent it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can reinvent it and still tie it to what came before. I, there's some people who, who just don't want to do that. They just want, and I get it. 
They just want to do their own thing and make a name for having done something that was so fresh and original, it'll make you forget what came before. Well, that's not really what happened. You know, um, <clears throat> I have kind of come to peace in my mind with a lot of the stuff that doesn't connect anymore by, it was probably after, <laughs> you know, probably after, um, you know, Marvel started their multiverse thing. And I'm like, well, I guess that's what happened to Star Trek. Somewhere along the line, the universe splintered into a bunch of different parts. And each one is slightly different. You've got a Picard in each, you've got a Pike in each one. And they're not mm. all the same, you know? That I could buy that, you know? Um, but it, it was true that if you were a legacy artist on the show, they, now, John Eves worked on a lot of the J.J. Abrams stuff. But, you know, he told me, he says, I took everything out of my resume that had Star Trek on it. You know, uh, mm. frankly, I, at the point where J.J. started doing his stuff, I wasn't actually interested in coming back. They didn't ask me, but if they had, I see the thing was, I was on Galactica with Gary now. Yeah. And if Enterprise hadn't been canceled, I wouldn't have gone on to Battlestar Galactica and I wouldn't have any Emmys. You know, so I was like nominated like seven times or something and won a couple of times. And so it was worth it. I hate to say that. I hated to see Star Trek. You know, I, I knew Enterprise. We all knew Enterprise was canceled. They didn't tell us. We didn't see it on the Internet. Yeah, we did see it on the Internet, but we didn't start looking until we noticed that people were coming in the art department we never saw before with tape measures. Oh, we're like, uh oh, <laughs> they're not telling us everything. Um, so I forgot so, where I was, where we were going. Where were we going? <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about the the last season of Picard and being okay. back on that iconic enterprise d set and uh you know following you on social media i saw a bunch of little easter eggs and inside jokes and 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 you know things that i probably wouldn't have been clever enough to pick up but what were some of your favorite of those little things that got put in for the for the fans well, my favorite was always the original stuff that mike did when he first started doing it you know capsule labels would say things like you know 186,000 miles per second. It's not just a good idea. It's the law. You know, pull on Superman's cape, you know, spit into the wind, you know, pull a mask on the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with Jim. I mean, that was on it. <clears throat> and uh, jokes were, the producers were, were great. They didn't have a problem with it. And the actors enjoyed it. And um, although I have to say, you know, I worked on Orville. And that was a show where I was forbidden to put jokes in anywhere. Okay, or, that's uh, wild. Because yeah. I think Orville is a comedy, and well, but no jokes. Know, huh? I think that uh, I got criticized from on high about it. I just remember Robert Strohmeyer, an awesome art director, said, "Let the writers be funny." And I'm thinking, wow, you're missing out on something that fans love to find. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the thing is that Seth is very, you know, there are some people who are more hands-on where they actually don't really need to be as hands-on as they are, but, but because they have, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, <laughs> <laughs> they have to get into every little nook and cranny and they don't want you making a decision on that. 
as a matter of fact, on the Orville, and I loved I loved working on Orville, but it, actually they tied my hands quite a bit more than they do on Star Trek. Um, you know, I started on panels, I started fleshing out systems, what they were, and it came back from on high. You're not allowed to use words anymore, just numbers. They didn't want me working it out. Okay, I'm totally okay with that. I, uh, because they're paying me and that's what they want and they have a perfect right. Um, on Picard, Harry Metallus would call me on the phone or email me and say, here's my situation. The ship has to do this, this, and this. How do you think we should handle that? And that's, that, that's incredible trust. Of course, I've known Terry. I mean, he was with us on Enterprise and Voyager as a writer's assistant. He used to hang out in the art department. And he always thought that we were the guys who wrote the book, you know? So he he wants to know. I, I'll give you an example. I worked on a show a few months ago. It was a normal show, basically, uh, that takes place in the 90s. And there's a teenage girl's bedroom. And she has on the wall all stuff cut out from fan magazines and stuff like that, People Magazine. And, and the set dressers dress the wall in the set. But now that they're cutting it together, the, the producer, the boss, doesn't like any of it. So what they want to do is redo all the artwork on the wall, composited in, in by the visual effects department. And so now they had time and they brought me back. And for like four weeks, all I did was move the pictures around, change their size, move this one a little this way, move this one a little that way. Uh, take this and swap it with for four weeks. For four weeks. That costs money. Uh, now, meanwhile, I on Star Trek Picard, I think, you know, I was involved with like five starships you know, space stations and I maybe got three notes. <laughs> you know? So it's like some people know to hire the right people and let them do their job. And then there's other people who can't, they have to, you know, but I'm not criticizing. That's a way that some people work. And if that's the way they want to work and they're in a position of responsibility, then that's the way you do it. But I've seen some pretty crazy Things like that, you know, and that's every every show is different. Every show is a different ecology, personality. You know, we had a really uh, horrific uh, era during Star Trek from Next Gen through to Enterprise because we had so many of the same people together for so many years that yeah. you could anticipate one another and you looked out for each other. And it was and it was a really well-oiled machine. I've been on shows where it's like they're so confused. And it's a simple show compared to Star Trek, you know. So how do you think, so when you started doing visual effects, the idea of being able to move the pictures on a wall with visual effects probably wasn't really technically even possible. So how does this, the advances in technology change the way people think about the visuals in a movie? Well, it used to be that if you did a makeup and the edges were all showing, you either let it go or you came back and did a reshoot. And 
the way it is now is you could go in and clean those that stuff up frame at a time in a program like After Effects or, you know, that's what happens. They get to the point where they're like art directing pixels. You could never see in a million years, you know. They will do that anywhere they can. There was a time when they couldn't do anything about it once it was created. Right. I first saw it when I was up at Foundation Imaging. There was an episode of Voyager and they had a ship. It used to be that we take a model of Deep Space Nine or the Reliant or whatever, pack it with prime record, explosive prime record, hang it from the ceiling of the stage, point the camera straight up at it with a piece of glass in front, and you'd blow it up two times, maybe three times. And whatever it was, it was. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this CG technology where it's all being done in the computer, the pyro and everything. And now a visual effects supervisor with notes from the producer and the director can sit there and say, I want the explosion to start on this end and I want it to work its way, ba-boom, boom, boom, boom. And then one big one here. And then I want stuff to fly by the camera. And so now you can do that until the very last second and keep changing it and doing variants. And, um, and the actual laws of physics don't have to play in the way they did when you were blowing up a practical effect. Yeah, well, the thing was that you had to have a, a supervisor who understood that. I mm -hmm. see plenty of stuff where things don't have weight, you know, on a CG shot. And I've seen other things where you'd never even realize it was CG, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it all depends on who's doing it and, uh, and what's the brain trust like at the place you are. If you've got someone who's really good at pyro, you know, but we're getting to the point where you could just say, computer, I need a big explosion here. And, and AI is starting to do it. Uh, people have been sending me, um, Dave Blass from Picard sent me a picture of four spaceships. And he says, I asked AI to make me four starships in the style of Doug Drexler. And they were nothing like what I would do. And they were, they were okay. And Dave wrote and said, I think we still have a few more years. We're safe for a few more years. I'm going to be retired in a few more years. I don't <laughs> care. So let's talk about the human process of designing. Because when you're designing spaceships and science fiction, you have to balance between making it familiar enough for people to understand what it is, but foreign enough so people kind of know they're not in Kansas anymore. How do you, how do you balance that? Well, I mean... You know, if you're doing alien stuff, there's a lot of room to do things that are off the chart, you know, uh, that you would never do for Starfleet because it looks too fanciful. You know, you could save your fanciful mm -hmm. designs that stretch imagination for aliens. But Star Trek, Federation Starships, um, you know, it all goes back to the original series where you had Gene Roddenberry, who was a B-17 pilot during World War II, and Matt Jeffries, who was a flight engineer on a B-17 during World War II. They were, Matt was in the, uh, he was flying missions against Rommel in Africa, and Gene was in the South Pacific. And so these guys, they had a close relationship with real machinery, real technology. Mm -hmm. They know what doesn't feel right. Uh, and you know, we got Matt got to be a good friend of ours, and we talked about it. Uh, 
And he, he said something that has stuck with me ever since. And he refer, he called it uh, aircraft logic. And so when you're designing something, you could either do a science fiction design, which means maybe no rules at all. <laughs> or you could do an aircraft logic design where you're trying to draw, you're trying to connect it to real world technology. And I think that Star Trek has always been very successful at that. Uh, we've always paid special attention to what's behind that panel. You know, how does it work? Why does it work? Uh, that's why Mike's graphics look so amazing because he's not just doing crazy wacky shapes with things that move on them. He's really, you know, there, there've been enough people on the show who really are interested in science and technology uh, to put enough aircraft logic reality into the designs that are far-fetched. And actually, they're almost never really, if it's Starfleet, it's not really that far-fetched, you know? Um, once you start getting, once things start looking just like science fiction, it doesn't look like Starfleet anymore. Uh, I think we saw that a lot uh, for quite a while in the JJ. Uh, I mean, look, when you use a brewery as the engineering department on the USS Enterprise, which the USS Enterprise is like the darling of NASA and JPL and stuff. They mm -hmm. they love it because they could see the thought that went on behind it. But when you yeah, if you don't understand it, you don't understand. You don't see what you're missing. You don't even know that you're missing it. You know, it's like for instance, look. I mean, if sure you could say that somebody, even if they don't know about Star Trek and science fiction, it's their job to learn it so that they know the difference. That's a pretty idealistic thinking that they're going to do that. You're, you're better off getting someone who has a background in it. You know, it's like if you put me on a football movie, I would make some bad mistakes because I have no idea about it. You know, I really have no idea. Um, if you go on to Star Trek and everything you've ever done before that, I'm not saying it isn't possible, but if you come on to Star Trek and all you've ever done is, uh, you know, sitcoms and stuff, unless you have a special flair, and some people do, you're going to design stuff that actually doesn't look like it does anything. You know, I saw it happen. I think it may have been first season Picard. There's a scene where 10 billion ships show up at the end. And it's like, well, first of all, I'm like, Starfleet. Okay, I'm willing to accept that they're spitting these starships out now with replicators. But for all of the, I mean, the universe is huge. They're still probably stretched thin. How do you get them all to show up at the same moment? Okay, so that is already straining, you know, my ability to believe in it. But then when you look at the ships, every single ship was the same damn ship, just like a rubber stamp, 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 stamp. And then when you got closer and you looked at the whole plating and stuff, none of it made any sense. It just looked like science fiction. It, well, the internet exploded. Fans went crazy. Uh, they gave the fans an in to, you know, read them the riot act. And it's just because they don't understand it. They don't think it's important. You know, really? I don't. What's the difference? Well, you don't know the difference because you have no real affection for it. Um, that era you know, through TNG to DS9, you had a lot of 
really hardcore people who understood the show, grew up with it. Uh, it meant everything to them. Um, and they also uh, understood the difference between aircraft logic and science fiction. You know, I mean, look at the look at that tech manual, you know, that Rick and Mike did for Next Generation. Then we did another one on Deep Space Nine, but I didn't think it was as, as entertaining, but you could see we put a lot of thought into it. So, you know, you, you've talked a lot about um, the sort of the, the people who get it in Star Trek and uh, following a lot of the people who've been involved, especially in this last season of Picard and who were excited to see, you know, their name on a ship in the in the big array or the little pieces or talked about going back on Enterprise D. And this is a real love. Right. And um, what is it that makes that kind of magic in a franchise? Well, I mean, there's, and this one has been said a million times, there's the general viewer who, well, they may love the characters and they may be engaged by the stories. Um, but Star Trek has always had a great appeal. And I keep to keep, sorry to keep retreading this one, but you know, the hopeful attitude about the world of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. that we are going to, make it and everything is going to be fine and we're going to work it out and technology is our friend and you know um then there it's are, a hopeful vision of the future yeah, we don't a, get a lot of those in science fiction no, no. And, and it's also much easier to uh, do dystopian stuff and you know um well, i i know that for me i have a and i know a lot of people that i know who are my age, grew up in an era where you were mocked for reading science fiction. Mm -hmm. And the fact that something comes along that treats it and takes it so seriously. I mean, it was obvious that Gene Roddenberry really took it seriously. He wasn't, you know, I, I'm nostalgic about Lost in Space and the time tunneling stuff. Those Erwin Allen shows are dreadful, you know. But I mean, Erwin Allen was just making stuff for the kiddies, you know. Sometimes it was entertaining, you know. The design work was often really great. I mean, I love the sea view. I love the robot. I love the Jupiter 2 and all that stuff. But the stories were usually pretty goofy. And if it wasn't for the wackiness of Dr. Smith <laughs> getting in trouble with Will Robinson and the robot, you mm -hmm. know, I have a nostalgia for that. But that's the way a lot of stuff was treated. Um, Forbidden Planet, you know, there's a, a pretty early film, science fiction movie that is, you know, very much like Star Trek. And it looks like a lot of attention was paid to making it feel real. Um, it, it, I was, they, they had my loyalty uh, because I knew that they loved it like I did. And they were kind of my family. Uh, no one else is doing it. They're the only, you know, ones who are taking this space opera thing seriously. Um, uh, I, I felt they were kindred spirits. Plus, when the Save Star Trek campaigns started up, like uh, towards the end of the second season, uh, we all got involved and wrote letters to NBC. And I even ended up in a couple of newspapers when I was like 13 for my safe Star Trek activities. <laughs> <laughs> you started early. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was involved with the safe Star Trek campaign. And, mm -hmm. uh, 
when you fight for something and you win, that makes you feel kind of special. And also it was another moment for me that was an epiphany that a kid could have some impact to have a newspaper call you and want to write an article about you. And then the show is saved and, and Gene Roddenberry acknowledges it and always love the fans. You know, I mean, when they did the first movie, the hangar deck, the uh, the wreck deck was all f- filled with fans and costumes. Even Denise Okuda's in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a certain strata of fan, uh, they've earned the loyalty of disenfranchised science fiction fans. <laughs> you know, where yeah, yeah. Uh, the rest of the world thinks there's something wrong with you because, you know, Kids used to mock me you know, for carrying science fiction books. Um, yeah, so- it didn't used to be cool. Someone at, at my day job uh, found out I was working on a Star Trek convention. I'm like, that's so cool. And I'm like, I don't know what year it became cool, but <laughs> I don't know when that happened. You know, I guess it was Star Wars did, did that. Made science fiction uh, profitable, which is number one with the studios. And... Um, Everyone did a, you know, handstands over it. I, I never got, I love the first two movies, but it it pretty much lost me after the second film. Uh, I never, I actually didn't see any of the other films. I've seen bits and pieces. I haven't seen any of the new shows. You know, it just, to me, it's like, in a way, it's not that different than Lord of the Rings, except they have technology instead of magic. You know, well, it, or some people argue it is magic, right? Because midichlorians aren't very technological. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, Star Trek is still, a. you know, the idea of a spaceship traveling through the, the universe, it's not new. Um, you know, there was Captain Video in the 50s and uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and but Star Trek was a, a, a different breed of that type of show. Um, I mean, it, it's it's very seductive, you know, the, the idea of that universe and how uh, we, it's not all, we've all been allowed to do whatever it is that moves us because our needs are taken care of and we could be artists and scientists and explore mm-hmm. and discover you know, other cultures. And of course, you also have to be willing to accept other cultures. <laughs> so many human beings can't do that, um, which is totally nuts to me. Um, yeah, I mean, that whole gene-topia <laughs> was always so appealing. But I mean, there's a certain group of us who um, it wasn't it was something you used to keep yourself sane as a kid when none of the other kids liked mm-hmm. what you were doing at all, which to me made it a private club, which I really enjoyed that. Um, and then when it leads you to a career, it changes your life, really. That That's a powerful, powerful thing. Um, Star Trek is so interwoven into my entire life my the entire timeline of my life uh it's crazy that's why i say uh, either this is an alien hallucination or i'm bleeding out on the side of the road somewhere at the age of 18 (laughs) 
because it's just too impossible that it happened this way. Uh, my life has been really, I mean, I've met so many of my heroes. Uh, it's freaking mind boggling. I'm really so fortunate. The Picard season three was an incredible present from Terry Metalis to all of us. I mean, he's, and he made no bones about it. On stage, he would say, it wouldn't be Star Trek without you guys. After we had been kind of brushed off the side for a couple of decades. There was no bitterness. I had no bitterness about it. I thought they were making a mistake. But, you know, my career went on and I did other interesting things, you know. Um, I I would rather be able, listen, I, I love being an important part of, the, of Star Trek. But I also love being able to say I was on Galactica, which I thought was an incredible science fiction show. Absolutely mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Orville, you know, among others. Um, that, how, how, how did that happen? How did this happen? So, so what is your, you've been, you've been involved in so many of the universes from Star Trek and Orville and Battlestar Galactica, uh, Starship Troopers, and even a Sharknado movie. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite universe? Is it the, star, I mean, maybe it's the Star Trek universe, but what well, makes the universe one you love? Star Trek. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's a part of the fabric of my being, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it just called me immediately from afar and it still plays an important part of my life every day you know i hope terry gets to do legacy that would be awesome i know i would be on it yeah like denise and uh, will it happen i don't know it's hard to say uh, the the whole streaming universe is changing right now yeah absolutely uh i think that we all knew that it there's going to be a point where, I mean, how many ways can you cut this pie up? How many streaming services do you need? How many are you willing to pay for? You know, I mean, I have three right now. I think that's too many. It's, you know, because I remember, you know, three channels plus uh, public TV and, and yeah. then it was cable and there were a thousand channels and now it's streaming and it was one or two and now it's a thousand. And, so the model's just completely flipped on its head, and I don't think we know where it's going yet. I don't. I'm, I'm just like, how do you make a profit? I yeah. I, and the thing is that there are there's so much content now that you can't see it all. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, discovering it is kind of difficult. When you had NBC, CBS, and ABC, the pie was only cut three ways, and so each company had a lot of money. Um to do things with, they weren't terrified of committing 26 episodes. Now it's like they're afraid to commit to 10 episodes every three years. We used to do 26 episodes a year mm -hmm. for 20 years, practically, you know, I mean, and now it's like, you see how long it is between seasons of the show, mm -hmm. which makes it difficult you know, for people who are working behind the scenes, because you've only got work for half, less than half the time now, and then you got to find something else. Plus, uh, work is going all over the world now. Mm -hmm. Vancouver, Hong Kong, India, I'm talking visual effects, you could phone it in, you know, you do the work in Thailand. Mm -hmm. you phone it in. Um, 
So it's actually, for me, it's, I think I got into the business just the right time. I have friends who say, and someone write me the other day, say, my son is 19 and wants to do visual effects. And I totally get that because it's so much, it can be fun. Although, let me tell you, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, makeup and visual effects were the hardest jobs that I ever did. Uh, art department it was the best because you got to do all kinds of stuff. And most of the time you went home at five o'clock. Visual effects and makeup could be 48 hour days. Uh, especially visual effects. They'll work you to death. There's no union. So they can do anything they want to you. Uh, and there's no union because the visual effects artists are terrified. They'll just go to Thailand. So they just keep quiet, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the hardest jobs. I, You know, it's like owning a parrot. I would, I would never tell anyone to get a parrot. <laughs> and as much fun as I had doing visual effects, which was about 11 years, I guess, it was because of Gary that I really had a great time. And then when Gary passed, that was it. I'm like, I knew I was done with visual effects because I don't want to go through that. I don't want to be chained to my desk, mm -hmm. you know, like, a, you know, someone rowing a Roman galleon, you know, with a guy in the front with a drum, boom, boom. And you're like, <laughs> I, I couldn't do that. You know, I had a special situation with Gary, just like I had a special situation in the art department. I had a special situation in makeup, you know. I mean, there was a period where I had my own place with Mike, I mean, John Caglione, and with, you know, Mike and Herman in the art department, Mike Westmore. Um, I've been not just fortunate in the jobs I've gotten, but fortunate in the people I've worked with. My God, you know, most people, I think they're lucky if they get one show where they, it felt special, where everyone took care of each other. I've had that numerous times in my career in different, you know, different things, whether it be effects or that's another reason why I'm sure I must be dying somewhere on the side of the road, because that's not <laughs> even possible. But I wonder if it's more prevalent in science fiction or if that's just the science fiction fan in me wanting it to be more prevalent in science fiction. Well, I mean, it is true that if you are a science fiction person and you work with a bunch of kindred spirits, you all have the, uh, the passion and you recognize it in each other it's like you will have a special relationship with someone like that i mean i could go to a star trek convention and almost anyone that i talk to we could strike up a conversation like we've known each other for years and we've never met you know and it's that shared kind of uh passion and shared childhood share you know it is special there's a special family thing yeah. Not just between people who work on the show, but the connection between people who work on the show and our fans of the show. Yeah. Uh, we all feel like we're part of the same, you know, uh, family group. Um, it's really, really special. I mean, the whole psychology of fandom is, uh, I mean, that's what propelled me to where I went. Uh, it was being, you know, you know, it's one thing to be a fan, but also to be a fan who, um, <clears throat> uh, understands the genre you know look that, there are people who really in their DNA I can't explain it it's in mine in yours but then there are people who are just action adventure fans mm -hmm. and it has nothing to do with science fiction 
even though that's a part of it, you know. There are people who watch the show and they think it's all about, you know, space battles. And they talk to me on the internet and they want to know about the phasers, how many phaser banks, how many torpedoes does it carry? And I'm thinking, man, you know, I mean, it takes, you're going to have all kinds who love the show because all kinds do love the show and for different reasons. For me, I was, I love action adventure too, but I was always impressed that Starfleet was like primarily the exploratory. Yes, it was mm -hmm. also there for keeping the peace and regulating trade, stuff like that. But um, I, I just loved uh, that idea that they weren't looking for trouble. They were just looking for knowledge and friendship, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that's not that exciting. I, I mean, I've got, I don't argue with anybody, but I've talked to people who are like, oh, yeah, um, yeah, all that talking, it's really exciting, you know. I, there are episodes where it is mostly talking, and they're amazing episodes. Mm -hmm. well, what's the problem? I don't why, right. Why is that no good? <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I saw, <clears throat> speaking of the design work, and I actually have a 15-minute thing I did on Matt Jeffries on my Vimeo page. And I opened it up with a video that a friend of mine took at, uh, I don't know if, it, I think it was in New York. I don't know if it was a Star Trek convention or just, a, you know, like a Comic-Con in New York or something. And they had a Starship Smackdown where they had all the fans in a room and they would put up pictures from different science fiction shows and based on the applause, the greatest starship spaceship, you know. And in the middle of it, during the picture of the original series Enterprise is up there. Some guy gets up and says, it's one thing to compare from this era to another era and which is better and which is... And But what you have to do is put yourself in the space of where something, where it was and when it was and how it was perceived at the time that it was. And he points to the Enterprise, he goes, and if you think of it that way, you will see that that is the sexiest, the most dynamic. And he went on for like, and then you realize that it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but of course, the other thing about the Enterprise is that even after 50 years, it still looks believable. Yeah. And not only does it still look believable, but it has been spun off into a thousand different directions. You know, I think it's funny when a new ship comes out and it'll get criticized because, because why this has structures on it that looks like it's from that Starfleet ship. And I'm like, but that's the Starfleet aesthetic. They all are related. They all have nacelles. They all have saucers. They all have a And all the cars have tires. Like that's you know, what I mean. But there are some people who, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing because I think that even the people who go after stuff and are desperate to find something wrong so they can shiv you. <laughs> that's not bad. And I've had to tell, you know, I mean, I've said it to Terry and Dave and, you know, because I've been dealing with it on a more personal level much longer than those guys have. And you finally have to come to the realization that you'd be much worse off if they weren't paying attention. It's the fact it doesn't matter if 
they're watching the show because they're looking for a reason to rip you. And if that's their joy is to actually find that you did something wrong, good, feel good about yourself because, you know, I told them the way I know how it ought to be. Why don't they, you know, um, that is a, a form of fandom, even though it, it could come across as mean spirited sometimes, but the fact that they care about it so much. And yeah. you know what Terry called it. He says, I don't understand hate watching. You watch something <laughs> because you hate it. You know, it's really funny. But the thing is, once you get it in your head that even the naughty, nasty stuff is actually positive, you know, because the truth is, is that they're so into it and they actually love it as much as they're hating it. You know, that's a success right there. You know, if they weren't looking at it and they had nothing to say, that's a problem. Aaron Wachke, um, who I think is a showrunner for Prodigy, was a guest at Starbase last year. And he said, uh, spirited debate is the love language of the Star Trek fan. And I think it's a fantastic quote. Yeah, he's, yeah it's true. He's being as kind as I am. <laughs> because sometimes you want to kill people. Well, sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're picking on your kid, basically, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's like. I think I got over that back on Enterprise. It was the first show where we had internet and immediate reaction. And it wasn't like it is today, but there were bulletin boards and stuff. And I think that the, the sport of ripping and shredding things really took off. And I think nobody was prepared for that. Um, and the stuff that they would pick on. And I mean, I took a lot of abuse over the NX. And it still is one of the most carefully designed of all the starships. I mean, every nook and cranny of that exterior was thought out, you know, by me or me and Michael Kuda. And, you know, right down to the, you could pull right up to the airlock. It's all there. And it's all very, very aircraft logic. I think that now after 20 years of ships that don't, meet, don't stack up, people look at the NX now and realize how carefully thought out it was. Um, but like I said, you know how everyone is like all weepy eyed about the D and Picard? Oh my God, there it is again. <laughs> Let me tell you, they hated it. They hated it. That's uh, the cycle, right? Something new comes out and they hate it and then they watch it and then they love it and then they're going to hate the new thing because it's not the old thing that they just hated. <laughs> yeah. I, th there's a... Um, I saw it on Picard when they first saw the Titan in pictures, not on show yet. Oh my God, they were ripping it to shreds and, you know, uh, talking such n nasty. But once a few episodes went by and the episodes were fun, if you have a lot of fun adventures with a ship, you will end up loving that ship. If there aren't a lot of fun adventures, not so much, you know. Um, so do you have a favorite ship that you've ever designed? My favorite? Well, of course it has to be the NX and the NX refit because that was my first enterprise, you know, to get to do that was, oh my God, you know, a dream come true to do an enterprise. Um, I think it was the first time we had CG in the art department. I had been working at foundation imaging for two years. And then when enterprise was starting up, I wanted to be there, but I didn't want to do graphics again. 
even though I love Mike and I love the graphics on the show, because I was learning a lot in CG. And I think Mike said to Herman, well, why don't you bring Doug back? He's learned a lot, you know, at Foundation Imaging. He could bring that CG know-how, which is still in its infancy. And we could use it in the art department, which is what we did. I, um, it probably is the first time anyone used CG to design a ship on a television show like that. Um, it used to be all pencils and pens and markers. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to see another angle, well, you had to go draw it. You know? <laughs> uh, or if you wanted to change the light, the way the light, you know, once we started building the NX in the art department, I was able to fly it by the camera, change the light, spin it around. Uh, and Herman felt, you know, really good about going over to the, you know, the, the producer's office with a VHS tape and, you know, showing the thing in motion, you know. Uh, so to come back and do that, you know, uh, first I love going back to the art department civilized art department and um so that to me that's like to me that's as pivotal as the first time i worked on star trek or the first time i ever saw star trek you know i mean since then i've been involved with um, three enterprises i guess enterprise g the nx the j um I mean, you know, three enterprises, not to mention a whole bunch of other ships. Picard was the, you know, I was talking to Dave Blass on, on Facebook Messenger. And he, he was a guy who grew up on a lot of the stuff that we did. And he was clearly a big fan. And uh, we struck up a, you know, friendship. And then he tells me he's going to be the production designer on Picard. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> I go, are you kidding? And he wanted to get back as many of us as he could. And I thought he wanted me back to do graphics, which graphics is for, you know, everything is challenging, but graphics compared to illustrator, conceptual illustrator to me is like, graphics is like falling off a log, really. You know, I mean, I'll, you'll work hard, but, but the one thing I knew I didn't want to do on Picard was design ships. <laughs> And I actually had, when I went to Orville, I had some CG friends of mine saying, I hope you're going to help them with their ships, you know. And I'm like, I'd rather eat worms than <laughs> work on ships because the ship gets a lot of attention mm -hmm. from the producers and the directors. And you could end up doing the design 40 times. And not that I have anything against that because they're paying me if you want to spend your money sure. that way. Um. So, actually, fortunately for COVID, about three months before Dave asked me on board, I said, well, you know, I I want to really, uh, I want to be able to, as far as building models, you know, starships are one thing. And I tell people who do see, who are learning, don't make models of starships. Make, go and get a Lamborghini and make a model of that. You could do that. There's no starship that's going to be too difficult for you because the compound curves and the beauty and the elegance of those designs and lines. So there was this program I wanted to get much better at, and I, you know, that production had been shut down. I spent like three months with this program building sports cars and stuff. And then 
when Dave brought me to Picard, it turned out he wanted me to work on ships. And I had a panic attack, I have to admit. Uh, and on the first day, I was having a panic attack. I remember Dorothy, my wife. Mm -hmm. She talked me down off the ledge. You know, she was good at that. Uh, she said, you're Doug Drexler. <laughs> so get out there and, you know, give mm -hmm. it a look. I, I, it actually, because Terry trusts, he trusts me, he trusts Dave. Uh, he trusts Mike, John Eves. He never got in our way. Um, it was such a pleasure, you know. Um, he totally, he knew who we are and he knew that we're going to do it better than anybody, you know, because it's yeah. such an important thing to us. Um, so I ended up being involved with just about every Starfleet ship and the space stations and Daystrom station. And, you know, um, it turned out to be a blast. I had such a great time. Uh, and the ships look awesome. Yes, they do. Absolutely. And, and, and listen, the other thing was I talked about the rubber stamp fleet, the 10,000 mm -hmm. ships all exactly the same. Dave Blass says that is never going to, he was the new production designer. So that's, that will never happen again. And because he knows all the ships. And then when that fleet showed up in the beginning of season two and people were able to go, oh my God, that's this class and that's this class and that's this class. They were so excited and I get it. I know why they are. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when we had, you know, a large portion, not the entire fleet, I'm sorry, is not at, you know, uh, at, at, there for this ceremony. You can't leave the entire universe unguarded. But a right. lot of you know, but a lot of the fleet, a large portion of the fleet has come back if they're within distance for this thing. And every ship is a real ship. It's no no baloney, no... Uh, I, I've already seen guys who have marked out like 306 ships or something in that armada at the end and, and, and notated what every single one was. That's what fans love. Yeah. They love looking at something and the closer they look, the more there is to discover, you know, and Picard does that in so many ways. I mean, it's like the archaeology of Picard season three, you know, um, listen to that score that yeah. Terry and his composer did. Usually yeah. when they do a new show or a new movie, they burn everything that came before. And it's all, and Terry understands the sense memory you know, that, okay, and he knows all the scores so well. Right here, I want that that sting where Enterprise is coming around the earth in the motion picture and the lens, the flare of the sun bursts behind it. There's a great Jerry Goldsmith thing there. There are moments from the Mutara Nebula that show up. There, so it's like you're getting hit with all of these amazing musical, you know, phrases that you grew up with and you loved for particular moments. And it's rushing it's bringing this rush of memories back mm -hmm. if to not have that i mean anybody who loved the original series should understand that because they had a stock music library that they used bit pieces of music over and over in different episodes and when you hear those cues you know i mean look everybody i don't even care if you're not a star trek fan 
you know, da 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 da. You know, yeah, yeah. Fight music. Mm-hmm. Even my grandmother knows that. You know, so to not use these 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 adored musical cues is insane, and they haven't been doing it for so long. And then Terry comes in, and they work. They do a score that is like one of the greatest. You know, uh, Star Trek albums you could get because it has so many moments in it that you love, you know, from, from previously on Star Trek. Um, Terry understands that. Uh, he's not offended by having to work within the universe. He's tickled to work within the universe. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, there are many producers and directors and writers who don't want to deal with that because they, they'll say, it ties my hands, you know. Really, I, uh, so many of the things that Terry made happen on Picard are things that only someone who is a true, true fan will understand and get and understand how important it is. You know, and then there are other people who don't know what it is, and they're actually kind of offended. You know, I'm left out of this. You know, and I'll I'll do something better. I'll show them how it's done, and I'll fix it. You know, you get people who think they're going to fix Star Trek. And then there are people who it it feels really good and they don't necessarily know all of the reasons why, right? That that oh, all yeah. of those details that go into making it such a rich, complex tapestry. Yeah. And they're just lo- standing back and going, this feels amazing and I'm not going to overthink it. Well, you know, the thing is that if you, as much as I love the Enterprise D bridge, if the graphics in the back were just like science fiction that you can't even look at them and figure out what they are or get an idea of what's going on there, that it undermines the entire ship. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Mike's graphics and readouts and stuff made you believe that if you pull this panel out, you're going to find technology. Mm-hmm. And um, it also si- subliminally suggests to you that there's an organization be- behind this ship that is making all this happen, you know, that there is a such thing as Starfleet and that there's engineers who are working these things out. If you don't do that, it just looks like, you know, I mean, I got to say that the first time I saw the bridge on um, the first JJ movie, I could not make head nor tails of what anything was. It just looked like spaghetti to me, you know, um, and this is one of the things about Star Trek that keeps coming up over and over, whether it's the the design of the ships or I talked to uh, Dr. Aaron and she talked about figuring out how certain pieces of the science work and going back through all the episodes and all the references and and figuring those details out from what was there. And we do a lot with the Klingon Language Institute folks. And it's the same thing, going into what we know about canon and figuring out what the language would sound like and what words they would have. And that piece of how would the universe work if it were a little different just keeps showing up in Star Trek in a way I don't think it does in a lot of other franchises because people want to figure it out like you're talking about. And I think that adds to the magic. Well, it's... Star Trek in that way is interactive, you know. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, I mean, look, if you're going to watch a show that's a law show, um, you're not going to spend any time thinking about how that, the, the see, Star Trek has incredible world building. Yeah. 
that challenges you to ask questions about the world itself, you know. Um, that, that it's the the show. People love it when their characters are like a puzzle that you have to figure out, but it's also fun to have that puzzle of the ship, you know, and the puzzle of the universe, uh, and how everything fits together and it works. And if you find that there's no inner logic, you lose interest, you know. Uh, it's like I said, it's like a it's like an onion, all those layers that you peel away, and there's like more. Um, that's why Trek has so many, you know, fans of JPL, and uh, I mean, they love the adventure, but they also love looking at the technology and seeing that there's that there's a logic happening here, and that it's been thought out, and the science is a certain. You may be bending things a little bit with the respect. You know, for the science and the physics, and you know, not that Star Trek doesn't do dumb things. They do dumb things all the time. I mean, uh, one of my favorites is on the original series uh, when um, the Fasarius, the Corbomite maneuver, the ship pulls up next to the Enterprise. The Enterprise is like the size of a fly, and a, a Spock is looking in his hooded viewer and talking about how how big it is he says readings go off my scale captain he measures planets <laughs> you know but it gets the idea across that this thing is enormous really. um but yeah star trek i mean you know isaac asimov was always became good friends with gene ronberg because he appreciated the fact that even when star trek was bending the rules that it was, you know, uh, somewhat based in logic. And they had a lot of fans that, like back then, the Rand Corporation uh, and other, you know, um, I mean, the, you know, it shows how science advisors are. I mean, Mike mm -hmm. and Mike and Rick really were like science advisors on Next Generation. I mean, they really are junior, you know, scientists and engineers, um, but. I'm blathering. <laughs> no, I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. You're so generous with your time. I really appreciate you talking. To me. Oh, I'm so no, excited. <laughs> Where are um, you? Well, I'm sorry? Where are you? I'm in Indianapolis. Um, and we have a little fan run Star Trek convention. Uh, what? The, the, the convention is named after. Yeah, Starbase Indy. Yeah. Starbase we're, we became a 501c3 about six years ago, and our mission is celebrating Star Trek's vision of the future through humanitarianism and, and STEM education. So we get a lot of, like we've got uh, Dr. Mohammed Noor coming this year, who's the biology advisor working under Dr. Aaron and uh, and Larry, I'm sure you know Larry Nemechek. Um, and, and so we, I mean, actors are great, but also the other, folks who build the world in other ways are are cool to talk to <laughs> yeah well you know i i once i started learning about it but yeah i like the actors and i love the adventures but wow i'm really fascinated with what's going on behind the scenes mm -hmm. um holy cow i mean um uh being a makeup artist on next generation was amazing because i got to live on the enterprise d yeah i'd be watching star trek in person you know 
sometimes I'm just a couple of feet away from them in the scene that you're watching. You know, that actually when we did that two-parter where Leonard Nimoy returns, mm -hmm. I'm like standing here watching makeup on Leonard Nimoy, Patrick Stewart, and Brent Spiner who are done up as Romulans. You know, I'm like, okay, this is pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty crazy. How did this happen? That that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And it's been a really fun conversation. Well, it's like I said, you know, this is the first time we've met, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. We may have chatted a little bit on the internet, but um, I feel like I've known you for a long time, you know, and it's that shared interest, shared passion, shared background, shared childhood. There's something magic about, about fandom and especially Star Trek fandom. And yeah. it just keeps showing up. And I've, uh, I started this podcast last year to kind of extend the work of, of our uh, organization. And I just love having these conversations and the more, and, you know, and from folks who've worked on the show, but also folks who are just inspired by it and, you know, doing science or whatever, or art or whatever, because this has sparked their, their mind and their creativity. And I just think that's really cool. Yep. Oh man, I've met I've met astronauts and scientists and you know who I I'm doing what I'm doing today. I I was at the Yuri's night. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so many people who are actually doing it, who were inspired by Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, when Dorothy passed, um, Mike had a picture of Dorothy and I that he sent to NASA, and they beamed up to the International Space Station. And they took an iPad with our picture on it and floated it in the cupola where you can see the oh, Earth. Oh, that's cool. And it's like, I, I, he sent it to me. I, I actually cried, you know. I mean, it was so amazing. Yeah. Uh, but to to these people, the show is, you know, means so, means so much. And, you know, humans have to envision something before we can create it, right? And the work that Star Trek and people like you have done in fleshing out that vision of a hopeful future and a positive future and a future where we go explore the universe instead of just being mad about things here, right? <laughs> if you want a great future, you have to envision a great future. Exactly. You so all your time bitching and complaining and, you know, hating everybody else. And that's all you're going to get. You know, you're going to reap what you sow. Uh, and you can have a positive attitude and make positive things happen, you know, or, you know, you could go the wrong way. Uh, nothing good comes out of, of uh, a negative attitude. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I learned pretty early on when I was in my teens was uh, the power of having a, a positive attitude, you know, and um, that was another thing about Star Trek that appealed to me. It was positive, you know, optimistic, and it was accepting of all kinds of people. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's part of the magic, too. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you go and but thank you so much. I will let you know when I get it all edited and uh, put together and um, probably going to do editing tomorrow because I'm super excited about this. Make me sound smart. You do sound <laughs> smart and you're awesome. Uh -huh. you, you know, like you've got the awards to prove it. <laughs> you know, I have to. There was, um, see, the beauty of having all the bling is that 
And no one can, you know, when you're a kid, they make fun of you for loving Star Trek or science fiction. Right. You can make fun of me. They can't. You can't make fun of me. You got to take it seriously. You know, um, there was a scene in Austin Powers movie where it was Austin Powers watching Steven Spielberg make Austin Powers, uh, the story of Austin Powers. I think Tom Cruise plays Austin Powers. Mm -hmm. And uh, Austin taps Steven Spielberg on the shoulder and is raving about it. And this is just the way it is in the real business too. Mm -hmm. Raving about it and saying, except for, you know, I think that maybe if you did this instead of that, and Spielberg reaches off camera and pulls up his Academy Award and says, well, my little gold man says, it's fine just the way it is. And one day I was going to, I had a director coming to my house to look at some stuff I had done. And I'd always wanted to be able to do that. So I took the Academy Award and I put it under my desk. <laughs> and so when he came in, of course, he goes into, wow, this is fantastic. And I, well, however, I think that maybe if you move this, pixel over you know and i reached under my desk and i put the took the oscar and put it down and said well my little gold friend here says it's fine just the way it is <laughs> that's fantastic what did he do well we both burst out laughing and, <laughs> and, you know, that was awesome <laughs> that's fantastic i love and that i've been waiting oh. for that opportunity yeah so you are you still working on a book you mean my memoir yes Yes, although I have been working over the last month or so. Um, <laughs> yeah, that day job stuff gets in the way of. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm you know I'm getting to the point where it's like I want to retire, but uh, as long as there's interest, you know, I mean, if Orville you get too much 4, fun stuff to do. Well, it's like I I want to do Orville four. Depends where they shoot it. If Terry does Legacy, yeah, I want to be on that. Yeah. The beauty of Legacy is they'll let me work at home. Mm -hmm. I could do that. That'll make the bird happy too. Yeah. Oh, I worry about him because you know we're here by ourselves now. Mm -hmm. um, but but anyway, I blathered it enough. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me, and thank you to everybody who's watching, listening. But I'm not good enough oh, to listening. do ed video editing okay. yet. <laughs> well. Set up the pictures of the two of us on your desk. Oh, I will. I, I will put some pictures out for sure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.